We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Abraham Lincoln once asked, Must a government of necessity be too strong for the liberties of its people, or too weak to maintain its own existence? It's an eternal question faced by democratic governments, one that faced Lincoln nowhere more clearly than in the state of Missouri, a state where much was at stake a state deeply divided, where slavery was legal, but yet a state that did not secede. How did Abraham Lincoln and his officers meet this challenge? We'll find out today when we talk with Dennis K. Bowman, author of Lincoln and Civil Rights in Civil War, Missouri, Balancing Freedom and Security. That's our topic today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. If you are a parent of a child with autism, you know that there can be day-to-day struggles emotionally. Now you can share insights and outlooks with the Mother Cub Show. Your host, Susan Lynn Perry, a parent of a child with autism, will bring a new perspective to the subject, from diagnosis to effective treatments that are working. Her guests will include professionals, authors, and individuals that will bring wonder and hope to the world of autism. Tune in to the Mother Cub Show, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Follow the World Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at World Talk Radio. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the World Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash World Talk Radio or follow along with us at World Talk Radio, the World Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from, as always, the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, a bright, sunny Friday afternoon at the end of February 2011, a day that started out raining when I was drilling the students in 3225 history of the Civil War and Reconstruction eras out in the courtyard, teaching them about what it was like to enlist uh, in a very uh, truncated fashion, of course, 
but the rain is gone now and things are, are clear here. But though I speak for uh, the show and my views on Civil War topics, not speaking on behalf of the university or the UNC system or the people of North Carolina or anything like that, and I'm certain my guest will do the same here. We have, as always, uh, good shows coming up in the weeks ahead. Uh, another uh, view of the situation we'll be talking about today, Missouri, during the Civil War, next week with Mark Geiger. Uh, and no show the week after that. March 11th will be spring break here at East Carolina. So uh, mentally I will be on a sunny beach relaxing, uh, uh, thinking about everyone back in the cold northern states. That's only mentally. In fact, I'll be in my office grading endless stacks of blue books and uh, writing book reviews and uh, preparing schedules for next fall and doing the kinds of things that uh, that the taxpayers pay us to do here at this or any similar university. The following week, we'll be back on, on the air on March 25th, and then on March 26th, there will be a conference at NC State, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, Public History of the Civil War is the name of the conference, and uh, I'll be appearing there along with some recent guests on the show, Thomas Mackey from the Abraham Lincoln Museum at Lincoln Memorial University, uh, and Aaron Mast of the Anderson Cottage Lincoln Home in uh, Washington, D.C., and we'll be talking about uh, uh, how how the public perceives Abraham Lincoln, which certainly may come up in our discussion today. We'll also, uh, there will be other people who've been on the show you've heard many times. Uh, Peter Carmichael, I know, is one who will be at the, the conference. So if you're in the southeastern part of the country, come on by. And uh, beyond that, if you're not there, do take a look at the website, impedimentsofwar.org, that uh, Mark Gaffney has generously provided for the show with all kinds of interesting information about it, including uh, an opportunity to donate to the show, help us obtain, help me obtain, no, no royal we here, the books are just for me, send money, I'll take the money, uh, I'll use it to buy books, I'll send some of it to Mark to keep the website up and use the rest for that spring break fantasy trip. Uh, well, that's, that will be a fantasy in that case. So uh, with those housekeeping items out of the way, let's move forward and talk uh, uh, with our guest today, uh, Professor Dennis K. Bowman, uh, who has written about Lincoln and civil rights in Civil War, Lincoln and citizens' rights in Civil War, Missouri. Uh, Professor Bowman, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, thank you for joining me on the show today. Uh, uh, can can we go by first names? Can I call you Dennis? Is that oh, uh, please, <laughs> please call me Jerry. Uh, All right. I don't think you and I have met uh, on the the conference trail. I don't think uh, other just in print at this point. Is that right? I think that's right. Now the uh, uh, so I was normally uh, I ask people about their day job, and so let me start by by asking you that question uh, when you're. Uh, when you're not writing about Lincoln and citizens' rights, uh, where, where does one find you? Well, usually I'm uh, working uh, for Yorktown University, which is an online university. So I teach and develop uh, courses for them. Uh, the last course that I developed for them was a course on the Bill of Rights. And uh, so that was an interesting project, which I just finished uh, three or four weeks ago, I guess. Now, I saw in the the 
I received your book here from uh, Louisiana State uh, University Press, which is certainly one of the most distinguished uh, Civil War presses. And it it mentioned, uh, you know, there's always a brief author bio and said something about Yorktown University, and it sort of passed over that and went ahead and, and reading and enjoying the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, literally within the last five minutes, I'd say, I thought, uh, you know, where is Yorktown University? It must be in you know, is it Yorktown, Virginia, or there are many Yorktowns. Uh, so I, I see, but it's online. So, so you're not any particular place. No, I'm actually I'm in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and uh, had previously taught at St. Louis University here. Uh-huh. I've taught at a number of different uh, universities. I also worked as an editor for a short uh, period of time at the Papers of Abraham Lincoln Project in Springfield, Illinois. Uh-huh. And, uh, but my job got cut out because of budget constraints, so this is something that happens to a lot of people, unfortunately. Uh, sad, sadly, that is true. That is um, uh, un- unfortunate. The um, and so I, I was glancing then at the uh, tracking down the, the Yorktown University, which, as you pointed, is, is uh, online. Uh, and glancing at their website, there's a very colorful picture of the surrender of uh, Cornwallis at Yorktown. <laughs> very appropriate, right? Uh, and some other of, other uh, indications of the, the kinds of things that that are taught there. And there's also an indication that the school is Tea Party friendly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. That, I don't know about that. That but, took uh, me back a little bit. Uh, what it, it is? Does the school have uh, an overt political agenda? Uh, no, I don't think so. Not not at least in the classroom. It does tend to cater to uh, students who want to, I guess uh, you would say, receive a more unadulterated education. There are people who very much dislike the fact that uh, that uh, there will be a certain amount of proselytizing in the classroom uh, by some professors, especially on the left. And so I think that's uh, one of the things that they they do uh, is they they tend to market to those types of students. But as far as having an agenda in the classroom, no. Uh, I, I can only speak for myself, of course, but uh, other professors that I've talked to who teach for the university online also have that attitude that, you know, basically you want to have a neutral aspect when you come into the classroom and allow the student to make up their own minds about those political issues anyway. Well, that's certainly true. As I was reading your book, I certainly, you know, read it as I would read any academic monograph, and then, you know, looking at how what evidence you're citing, what arguments you're making, and and what stories you're telling, and it was no different from any of the other in that regard. And it's professional. It's no different from you know many of the other books I read. Although, as as listeners to the show know, a lot of people uh, write about the Civil War who are not academically trained and. Uh, sometimes very successfully, but sometimes uh, you know you get some some oddities. Uh, right. But uh, you said something interesting, which is you know all you can do is speak for your own classroom, and I, I feel much the same way. Certainly, there's an impression held among some parts of the public, and, and very sadly, it's held by some of the state legislators here in North Carolina that uh, any public university, including the University of North Carolina and its constituent campuses like East Carolina is just a hotbed of, of hippie, pink, yeah. commie, Marxist 
liberals, right. and all we do is inculcate our students with these views, I, can only, I don't sit in other professors' classrooms, so if they all do that, it, it, I suppose maybe they do. But I certainly don't, uh, so I don't know how accurate that is. And I guess if, if all we can do is, is try to teach history you know, professionally as we know it, uh, right. uh, there's not much else we can do. Uh, so anyway, that... Uh, well, that just uh, caught me by surprise that I thought I would ask you about it. Uh, it. It does bring up, and I, I do want to talk about your book. I don't want to get off yeah. too much on a tangent here. I apologize for that. But uh, I know that there there are schools that do have do have overt uh, uh, social, if not political, agendas, such as Liberty University in uh, uh, in Virginia, the, the school that Jerry Falwell founded. Right, and they have an annual Civil War conference which I've spoken at and uh, I just looked at the lineup of who's speaking this year and I uh, I, I can't recall who is on it but it, it's people who've been on this show people whose books you and I have both read who books many of the listeners have read uh, it, it doesn't look that different from right. any other academic conference yeah I, I think that um we all should watch out for our own biases, and, and certainly I try to keep that out of my my books. I, I I would admit to certain biases. I think you would admit to certain biases as well. And uh, like you said, the, the main thing is to, to be a professional, uh, as a, a well-trained historian, hopefully as we are, that uh, we'll do a, a, an expert job of, of going through the sources weighing the evidence, uh, analyzing it, and presenting it in a factual matter, uh, manner, and uh, also to, to be fair-minded. And that's, that's what I try to do. I'm sure that's what you try to do. And I think it, in some ways that's the best, best way in some sense to proselytize for one's view. I don't know if I would so much call them biases. I guess that's an accurate term. But, but we have views. We're all political people as well as, as historical people. We all have other lives that we lead and and uh, uh, whatever views we may have we have them for a reason but if we are sincere about them then we would think the most unvarnished accurate recounting of past events that we can provide ought to support what we believe and if it doesn't then we should change our beliefs not try to change what we teach absolutely uh, so with that said let's, let's talk there, there can hardly be a more controversial yeah. uh, political period or, or, or location rather in, in the entire Civil War era than, than the state of Missouri. Uh, and that, that's what you've written about here. What I'd like to do is, is follow the same thing you've done in the book, which is, is proceed more or less chronologically, uh, because often on the show I'll, I'll, I'll sort of dismissively say, well, listeners will all know, of course, that uh, you know Grant was surprised uh, on April 6, 1860. <laughs> too, and, and everybody listening to the show knows about the Battle of Shiloh, but man, there's a lot that happened in Missouri uh, that not everybody knows, or, or that if they do, they get a headache trying to recall it all. Uh, <laughs> let's start with the, the, the beginning. The, the state does not secede, but there's pressure on both sides for it both to stay in and move out of the Union. Who who are the players at the beginning of this, this contest? Well, I guess uh, the main player for secession would, I would say, was... Uh, the governor of the state who had just been elected, Claiborne Fox Jackson. He ran as a supporter of the Union 
and also as a supporter of Stephen A. Douglas, I think, because he understood that the state was fairly unionist, even though it, w it has a strong uh, Southern uh, sympathy there and also is pro-slavery. But as soon as he was elected, he began to then, uh, with the state legislature, uh, to push for establishing a state convention. And of course, you know that the state conventions were the way that uh, most states went out of the out of the union. Uh, they would uh, elect delegates to that state convention. They would get together, and uh, usually they'd have a, some sort of a committee that would get together and. Uh, draft resolutions and uh, decide on, on the issues that they had before them. And, and the state uh, convention in Missouri was held at first in Jefferson City and then was moved to St. Louis in uh, late February 1861 and continued into March of 1861. And eventually they decided that they were not going to succeed, even though there was a good deal of grumbling about how that uh, Northerners were mistreating Southerners and how that uh, the South should not be imposed upon nor forced back into the Union, those states that had seceded. And also they were, of course, very pro-slavery and anti-Lincoln as well. Now, that put uh, Missouri in the same camp in a way as, as Kentucky and Maryland as the, the three critical border states that allow slavery but don't secede immediately. And in Maryland, Lincoln immediately resorted to force or the threat of force, suspending uh, habeas corpus, marching troops through the state. It was the only way they could get to D.C. and uh, authorizing uh, uh, the army to fire on, on Baltimore or arrest the state legislators. Uh, that's not the approach he uses in, in Missouri. No, it's not. What happens in Missouri is that he, he really takes a hands-off neutral uh, point of view. He he. There are a number of uh, delegations of Missourians who go to Washington to talk to, to Lincoln about these matters. And, and one of these delegations, uh, he tells uh, one of the members, uh, Charles Gibbons, uh, Gibson rather, who, was, who later became a federal uh, judge, uh, he tells him that he will not march uh, federal troops through Missouri like a bridge, I think is how he put it uh, to Gibson. And uh, what he promised was that he would do nothing to provoke any kind of backlash against uh, uh, Union supporters in Missouri. And, and he really tried to, to maintain that, but uh, the Southerners were, weren't allowing that to happen, uh, especially Jackson and his lieutenant uh, governor, Thomas C. Reynolds. Uh, both those men were uh, writing letters to Jefferson Davis, and they were trying to seize uh, they were conspiring to seize the uh, arsenal at St. Louis and uh, and uh, doing various things that uh, would prepare Missouri to succeed. <clears throat> they were just kind of biding their time, hoping that events would work out better for them than they had originally with the state convention. Was there any Union military force in the state at that time? Not at first. Uh, now, um, after the Camp Jackson affair, uh, well... I should back up. There was, of course, a garrison at the St. Louis Arsenal. Uh, but uh, as far as a lot of uh, new troops coming in to Missouri, that didn't happen until a little bit later. Uh, the main uh, thing that sparked, I, I think, the, 
the struggle between the Unionists and the Secessionists in the early part of the war was uh, the Camp Jackson affair, which occurred in St. Louis. It was uh, a uh, national, uh, a rather a state guard uh, encampment, and uh, they were drilling. There's about a third of the uh, the uh, guardsmen who were there who were actually pro-Union, but uh, it was also obvious that uh, and that they were that the leadership of uh, the Missouri State Guard was was trying to prepare for war and uh, to come on the side of of the South. And uh, what happened was that Nathaniel Lyon, who was in charge there uh, in command of the St. Louis Arsenal, marched troops over to the Camp Jackson uh, location, surrounded it, and forced uh, their surrender. And that really began the war because as he was marching uh, his uh, captured uh, prisoners uh, towards St. Louis Arsenal again, which was a fairly long march that would have been about, I think, 15 miles, uh, he was attacked. His troops were attacked by bystanders who were angry, who were pro-Southern, and uh, there was shooting. And, and Ulysses S. Grant was there, and, and so was uh, William Tecumseh Sherman which is one of the interesting things about about that. Uh, they were both in St. Louis at the time. I'm sorry, not not Grant, but uh, certainly Sherman was there with the, with one of his sons. So from the start, we've got uh, a confused situation, a governor and a legislature leaning uh, for secession, uh, an energetic local officer working against it, uh, the state itself divided. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back in a moment. We're talking today with Dennis K. Bowman about Lincoln and citizens' rights in Civil War Missouri. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market people are looking for hands-on alternatives to conventional psychotherapy long-term therapy and medications to treat depression and anxiety are no longer the only answer tune in to holistic answers to mental health with your host aileen neely let aileen show you the techniques of energy psychology you'll learn some of the more effective methods being used to treat stress anxiety marital issues infertility and empowerment listen every friday at 10 a.m pacific time 1 p.m eastern on the world talk radio variety channel Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We're talking today about the situation in Missouri during the Civil War with Dennis K. Bowman. He's written Lincoln and Citizens' Rights in Civil War Missouri. The uh, 
war began there, as, as you note, uh, Dennis, with the, the Camp Jackson affair in St. Louis, uh, with the, uh, the governor uh, and the state militia leaning towards secession. Uh, but, if, but, but then uh, Nathaniel Lyon takes drastic action and, and prevents that. Uh, within a short time, the state has a, a new government or, or yes. maybe has a new government. Uh, uh, how does that situation arise? Well, it's very interesting because um, in their zeal to establish this state convention, the state legislature pretty much left open-ended what uh, the duties of the state convention were. And because it was dominated by unionists, uh, after the initial meeting of uh, of this convention, uh, they they also uh, decided that they would uh, allow themselves, if if the necessity uh, occurred, that they it was there, they would then uh, reassemble, and that's what they did in um, July of uh, 1861 after uh, the state legislators and the governor and his supporters uh, all fled uh, the capital there in Jefferson City. And so what happens is uh, they're, they're, uh, they, they flee. They're being pursued by Nathaniel Lyon. There are a number of skirmishes at uh, Boonville and and uh, Carthage, Missouri, and then eventually there will be one, of course, at uh, the Battle of Wilson's Creek. And this all happens uh, in a fairly regular order, fairly quickly. But the the state convention comes together, and they decide to oust the governor and uh, the legislature, and uh, they put uh, in uh, place a provisional government uh, led by Hamilton R. Gamble, who is the provisional governor of the state, and uh, the state convention becomes kind of a provisional legislature, and uh, they meet periodically throughout the war, the first time uh, in October of uh, 1861 to, uh, to decide various matters and to especially prepare to, for the establishment of a new militia, which is one of the things that was necessary at that time. So the, the irony that this convention originally called to discuss, if not promote secession, uh, turns out to resolve itself into essentially a constitutional convention that throws out the old government and makes itself the legislature or the neo-legislature. Right. Quasi-legislature. So now you've got Gamble, uh, the de facto governor of the state. Uh, at this point, uh Lincoln sends General Fremont, uh, someone our listeners have heard of, uh, of course, uh, the old Pathfinder, to take over. Things don't go so well under Fremont. No, they don't. Uh, Fremont seems to to be very much involved in constantly and continually uh, planning, but uh, doing very little, unfortunately. And uh, during that period of time, of course, Nathaniel Lyon, uh, has troops facing against uh, the major forces under uh, General Sterling Price, who's now the commander of the Missouri uh, forces that are still, Confederate forces that are still in uh, Missouri. And uh, Fremont seems to not really understand that you need to do something. And uh, he, he doesn't send support to Lyon when uh, his forces are arrayed against uh, Price's forces and McCulloch's, Benjamin McCulloch's 
forces as they combined uh, against uh, Lyon and outnumber him. And, um, of course, that leads to, to something of a disaster at Wilson's Creek at that battle. And um, the Union forces are defeated and Lyon is killed. Um, and Fremont, uh, even after this, and when Price is marching through a good part of uh, Missouri with his troops slowly making his way to various points and eventually captures uh, the, the town of Lexington, Missouri, at the, the Battle of the Hemp Bales, as it's often referred to. Uh, still, uh, he does nothing, even though there are a number of people, including the governor, Governor Gamble, trying to get uh, Fremont to do something. And uh, it seems that he just will not uh, understand that you, you have to act and you have to, to actually fight battles. He, he seemed to be, I think, very much focused on a Mississippi River campaign, which uh, I think very much engrossed his attention. Now, he does act in one sense, and that, of course, is his Emancipation Proclamation, which, uh, again, causes causes more harm or does more harm than good in the short run. Yes. Um, well, the problem was that he, he was just too far ahead of uh, public opinion, especially in Missouri. Now, I think one of the problems that Fremont had was that he was he had uh, surrounded himself with uh, those people who were abolitionists, those people who were in favor of ending slavery, but they were the, a very small minority of uh, the Missouri population, uh, as we've already mentioned. Uh, all, almost all of the unionists were pro-slavery at that point. Now, this will change over time in Missouri, uh, but uh, very much at first that was the case. And so Lincoln, of course, had to rein him in uh, on that one and other matters. Uh, certainly the shooting of uh, prisoners uh, was another thing that uh, prisoners of war should not be treated that way. Now, uh, as you, you know in my book, we the, you have to make a distinction between uh, prisoners of war, uh, actual uh, regular troops in the Confederate Army, uh, as a, and distinguish them from uh, bushwhackers and guerrillas who were not regular forces but irregular forces. So it's... Uh, it's a very complicated story because of, of all the twists and turns, as you said. Well, this, um, I mean, I guess let's delve into that. The uh, war is governed by, by rules, uh, you know, as paradoxical as that is uh, then as now. And uh, while the United States will eventually come up with a, a formal written code, the Libra Code, that you, you described in your introduction, halfway through the war, even at the start of the war, uh, both sides accept there are certain things you can and can't do. Yes. And guerrilla warfare is certainly a, a gray area there as to what you can and can't do. Uh, what, what, what does that involve? Well, uh, of course, guerrillas are, are people who are not regularly enlisted in a regular military force. And for that reason, they are not uh, considered to be lawful combatants. If you want to use the terminology of today, um, and therefore, uh, under international law at that time, if you caught uh, guerrillas in the field with with weapons, uh, you could and you captured them, you could shoot them right on the spot. In fact, that was that was the policy that was adopted very early on in the war in Missouri, and I think it's one of the reasons why it became such a bitter conflict. 
Well, you know, last week on the show, uh, Mark Weitz was on discussing his book on the piracy cases of 1861, where you had the same issue that uh, Confederate sailor privateers who were captured in 1861 were put on trial for piracy to be executed. Uh, and the Confederates argued, uh, the, the defenders argued in that case successfully in one case, that, that you don't shoot Confederate prisoners of war. On the, you capture at Bull Run, let's say, or Wilson's Creek, uniformed soldiers. Uh, because that would have led to, a, politically, it would have led to a complete destruction of the Union. You could never reunify right. states if, if, if their young men had been simply shot out of hand. But that is exactly what happens in Missouri, where, where sold, not soldiers, but guerrillas uh, fighting out of uniform, fighting out of the constraints of regular warfare, are, in fact, shot out of hand. After Halleck is put in charge when he replaces Fremont, that, that's very clearly the policy that, that guerrillas are to be shot on sight. Yes, and remember that he wrote a book on international law, and which includes, of course, the, the laws of war. And so he was very much uh, an expert on that, and uh, he knew what the rules were, what the laws were. In fact, one of the reasons that I think uh, he contacted Francis Lieber, who was uh, one of the major authors of the Lieber Code, which was General Orders Number 100, which was issued as a manual to the rest of the military, Union military at the time, was to just kind of reassure himself that what he was doing was right, and uh, Lieber backed him up on that, uh, uh, especially when you have uh, civilians behind the lines. Uh, they're, they're supporting... Uh, an enemy that is not holding that territory, that is, that is what's especially egregious about that. Because once you, you begin to have that type of warfare, it uh, very quickly becomes very nasty and, and very bloody. And uh, that's why I think that uh, at that time they took such a strong, strong measures against uh, guerrillas. Well, it, it, again, something that echoes in more recent American history, if you go into a village, uh, well, first of all, there, aren't, there are no front lines, so to speak. I mean, there's a Confederate army to the south under Price right. and, and Union forces, but the guerrilla warfare takes place throughout the countryside, regardless of who's nominally in charge. And you can have a village that theoretically is under Union control, but the civilians there support the Confederacy. Some of them at night may go out and engage in bushwhacking. This, the same difficulty that American troops faced in Vietnam, figuring out if this was a Viet Cong village or a right. uh, South Vietnamese government village, and the same issue in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, are yes, the natives but, here supporting us, or are they actually our enemies? Yes, uh, but you must remember also that the rules had changed by the time of Vietnam and, and the Iraq War, and, and so that's not something that's acceptable or was considered acceptable. In fact, you have to remember also that uh, there were Union enclaves in, in uh, different parts of the Southern Confederacy that acted as guerrillas, and they were treated in just the same summary fashion by the Confederates as uh, the Confederate uh, guerrillas were, were treated. So both sides were doing it. Uh, of course, uh, this is a, a very ugly part of the war. I think that the best thing to have been done would have been to at least uh, have some sort of military commission trial uh, for those people that you caught red-handed uh, who were involved in guerrilla activities. I, 
the the problem was that it, it was really it got ugly really fast i mean you had uh, a train in september of 1861 that uh, fell into uh, a river the little platte river because the bridge had been damaged by gorillas and uh, a number of people died in that sort of thing people were being shot in their homes and and uh, this continued of course throughout the war and you had uh, eventually of course the 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 raid on uh, Lawrence Kansas and so there's all kinds of, of very ugly things happening in Missouri it was a very unsafe place to be if you were uh, a farmer or even someone in a town because uh, you could have gorillas come through take over the t- town for a time and and uh, kill and loot and do whatever they pleased, and they pretty much did that. So, so the the counterviolence by the northern Union armed forces of, of seizing guerrillas and then shooting them out of hand. Uh, and I guess you can understand where the emotion behind that might come from in right. a situation like that. But it, as you point out, it makes things ugly. It leads to reprisal and further vengeance and, and breaks down law and order. Um, well, a central question then one is what what was Lincoln's role in this? Did he not tell Halleck and others uh, you, you can't go doing this? You can't just go shooting these these people out of hand? Well, I, I think he understood that he really had no control uh, over situations where troops in the field capture these guerrillas. That they're pretty much going to do what they what they want with those types of prisoners and it was generally kill them because of of the bitterness but as far as uh, prisoners who are taken and who are uh, tried before military commission and uh, sentenced to death or some other serious uh, penalty uh, he reserved the right of course to 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 supervise those types of uh, proceedings and decide whether or not uh, indeed they should that person should be uh killed or he he sometimes would just uh reduce the penalty in some way uh i think that lincoln was a compassionate man but i think he also was pragmatic and saw that uh, some of these things it was probably better not to try to 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 get involved in of course he did uh okay uh give his his uh, stamp of approval on uh, the Lieber Code, which includes the uh, summary execution of guerrillas. So uh, he did not oppose that. What about the military effectiveness of this policy? First of all, how strong was the guerrilla threat in Missouri? Was there a chance of it taking over the state? Well, uh, for a time, it it certainly was very serious. Uh, One of the things that really exacerbated it was that uh, General Price as the Confederate commander of uh, the Missouri forces would uh, send out commissions to many of these guerrillas trying to give them legitimacy and there was a certain amount of of uh, controversy that resulted from that between Halleck and Price they exchanged letters and Halleck very much uh, explained to Price that that was just not something that was within uh, the realm of legality as, as far as warfare went. And so there was a, a, a controversy over that, and uh, Halleck made it very clear that these fellows would not be shielded by their commissions. 
And uh, there, were, there was a, a major uprising of guerrilla forces in the summer of 1862, and that actually instigated uh, the establishment of what was called the Enrolled Militia. There had already been established the Missouri State Militia, which was a, a very highly uh, well-trained and, and very professional uh, Missouri State Militia. Uh, but uh, the enrolled militia was much less well-trained and, and armed, but uh, were for emergencies, uh, were established for emergencies like the guerrilla uprising of 1862 and uh, other incidents like uh, after the Lawrence, uh, Kansas massacre, and then in 1864 during Price's raid, those, those kinds of, of uh, times where you had uh, major uh, guerrilla uprisings. And you had hundreds of men sometimes sometimes in these bands uh, and they of course were uh, large enough that they could uh, ride into a town and take it over and and uh, kill anyone they wished and and uh, and a lot of that sort of thing happened well we will take another break here we'll come back and talk more about the mayhem in Missouri and the attempts of the union government to establish control there. We're talking with Dennis Bowman, author of uh, a book on Civil War events in Missouri. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be back in a moment with more Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are looking to get started or are currently operating a home-based business, you might be looking for answers. What are the risks? What business should I get started in? How will I market my business? How do I balance my professional life with my other life? For answers, you need to tune into the Home-Based Business Show with Helene Leontzos. Each week, we'll bring you a step-by-step practical guide to starting and maintaining your home-based business. Listen every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dennis K. Bowman, author of Lincoln and Citizens' Rights in Civil War Missouri, Balancing Freedom and Security. We've been talking about the confused situation there, the establishment of a new uh, union government to replace the pro-secession government, the uh, threat from guerrilla warfare, the willingness, the policy of Union troops to execute guerrillas captured in the act of 
uh, damaging uh, telegraphs or railroads or uh, generally fighting against the Union in uh, in non-regular fashion, if out of uniform, if not uh, not behaving as regular military forces, but as uh, civilians. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Dennis, I suppose the, the basic basic objection to guerrillas is you can't claim the protection of being a civilian, uh, and yet also claim the privilege of use of violence of a soldier. Uh, you, you get one or the other. And if you're going to uh, use the violence of a soldier, then you cannot uh, try to hide behind civilian clothes and blending back in the population. Yes, and that's, of course, a, a very difficult problem. We've seen that uh, in other conflicts, as you, the ones you've mentioned, of course, uh, with Vietnam and Iraq and, and Afghanistan now uh, in particular. There's always that problem of, of how, how do you d- determine who is a friend and who is a foe. Now, you mentioned something else interesting, the uh, the militia situation. At the beginning of the war, the state guards uh, lean toward secession. Uh, Missouri forms a, a new militia that is loyal to Governor Gamble and the Union forces. And then to meet the guerrilla crisis, you have a, a new organization, the Missouri Enrolled Militia, that includes just about every military-age man, uh, in theory at least. And what I found interesting, uh, as you describe in your book about these these militia organizations, is that they are purely state organizations. They are they report to the governor. They're under the governor's military control, not the control of federal officers in the state. They they can't leave the state. They can't be used to fight Confederates elsewhere. So you've actually got not just a Union and a Confederate army in Missouri, but a Union, uh, the federal Union volunteers, and then you've got the Missouri Unionists under the governor, and then you've got Confederates, and then you've got Confederate guerrillas. So you've got at least four uh, <laughs> military forces contending, and they're not even—it's not even clear who's on whose side sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of accusations that fly around about some of the enrolled militia forces uh, not being actually loyal forces, and in fact, uh, there's there's evidence that some of uh, those uh, those people who had originally enlisted in the Confederate military and had come back home, some of them had had been uh, uh, paroled from places like Shiloh and Vicksburg and had returned home and then were enrolled into the enrolled militia, and uh, some of those were able to to eventually get themselves unenrolled by declaring themselves disloyal. Uh, but there was some accusations, especially by the radicals uh, in Missouri, that Governor Gamble was really trying to, to use disloyal elements to, to uh, hamper the Union cause in Missouri, which, of course, was ridiculous. He was a very loyal man. Um, but uh yeah the the militia the military the uh, political situation was all a very confused one uh, you had both a military and a uh, civilian government you could say and also you had a a civilian and a military uh, judicial system and police force you had the provost marshals uh who often uh acted as uh kind of a an intelligence gathering uh, source as well as uh, arresting, directing different uh, regiments and elements of uh, the Union military to 
to arrest people. And, uh, of course, there was also a good deal of, um, of uh, constricting of uh, civil rights in uh, this war in Missouri. So uh, it's well, a really nasty little conflict, I'm afraid. It, it it is, and that I mean that's the the title of your book, Citizens' Rights. Uh, those are under uh, you know under a great deal of duress during the war in Missouri, because as you say, there's there's there is gambles of the civilian government, but there's also the military government by the, whoever the commanding Union general is, whether it's Fremont or Schofield or uh, uh, Curtis, uh, different people at different times, or, or Halleck, and they all have the provost marshal to act as their police, and they all expressly prohibit uh, things we take for granted in peacetime, like like uh, uh, the right to express oneself freely. They they suppress uh, newspapers. They arrest preachers for preaching Confederate sermons. They uh, uh, they, they generally come down quite hard on what they perceive as disloyal behavior. But as you point out in, in the book, this is also uh, an extraordinary time in which disloyal behavior threatens to uh, end the existence of the state as a union state altogether. Yes, I think also Lincoln did, uh, for the most part, act to, to mitigate some of the, the severity of all that. Uh, he did back up commanders uh, in some of these policies, but... He he didn't let them go too far with it, and uh, I think he really did try to operate on the basis of military necessity. Whatever was was necessary, uh, he was willing to to do it, but only if it was necessary. And as soon as it wasn't, he wanted to to then pull back from that. Now you especially see evidence of that at the end of the war, where he's he's trying to. Uh, and uh, military occupation in Missouri, and he's he's prodding uh, commanders like uh, Grenville Dodge and uh, the the civilian governor at that time, uh, uh, Thomas C. Fletcher, uh, to to begin to to look forward to a time when peace would return, and and so he's trying to 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 manage and encourage a transition to peace as soon as possible. I think that does show through in what you've written here that, uh, as you point out, there are some people who will portray Lincoln as a power-hungry tyrant who is eager to suppress uh, <laughs> civil rights. But if you look at the actual train of events, Lincoln is very much reacting rather than initiating things in Missouri. And if, if anything, he seems very frustrated that he so frequently is called in to serve as referee between uh, these, these competing groups, the civilian and the military government, the conservative unionists and the radicals, uh, they, they always, there's always some dispute over something that ends up uh, on Lincoln's desk. And he, he grows increasingly frustrated that the Missourians can't just get their act together <laughs> and be a loyal union state. But he, but he doesn't initiate these things and say, let's go in there and crack down on them. It's, it's more often he's presented with a case, well, we've arrested so-and-so, what do we do now? Yeah, and eventually, I think, by uh, the summer of 1863, he begins to be more willing to intervene and stop some of the abuses. Uh, he, he, he sees what's going on, he says, uh, to General Schofield uh, in the summer of 1863, after Schofield issues a general order uh, warning uh, newspaper editors not to publish disloyal things and and uh, makes other 
threats to to people that are, are disloyal. Uh, Lincoln tells Schofield that uh, he should only use uh, military means to suppress dissent in extreme cases when it's actually really necessary. So he doesn't rebuke Schofield publicly, but he does privately, I think, to an extent. And Schofield's smart enough to, to see, yes, that uh, he's right, and I've got to be careful not to get all worked up about somebody calling me a name or, or, or trying to present me as disloyal, which some of the radicals, uh, of course, did. And, and uh, they considered anyone who was pro-slavery to be disloyal, which was not true. And this was one of the major uh, sticking points in Missouri, I think, was when the radicals became stronger and stronger and were led by people like Charles D. Drake, who I think was really trying to use the, the turmoil of the time to, to gain uh, a following and, and eventually higher political office. I think that was really his goal. Mm. Well, the uh, slavery, as you mentioned, is, is a key point because Missouri is a slave state, and Missouri uh, is, of course, exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. So it's interesting to read that the state convention in 1865 is finally agreeing that they will emancipate the slaves in that state in 1870, uh, that they will they will eventually get around to it. Actually, it was in 1863 that the state convention uh, okay. decided that, and then it was in 1865 that a new convention actually immediately uh, abolished slavery at that point before uh, the 13th Amendment was, was ratified. Ah, so, okay. so, so they were a little bit ahead of the curve by that time, mm -hmm. but... Um, uh, yeah, the, the whole slavery issue was uh, one of the things that kept continually stirring the pot. <laughs> but you know, the the as, as I was reading this, I, I was struck also by the contemporary applications. And you mentioned uh, in the introduction uh, that this, this is a continuing issue in American uh, or in any free society. How much freedom can you give up while fighting to protect your freedom? Uh, and and the use of of, of suppression of civil liberties here uh, is timely in the event of, in the light of things that have happened in, in Iraq, certainly, and, and in the, the uh, uh, conflict against terrorists. But something uh, that, that also struck me was the discussion of, of suppressing free speech, uh, the disloyal speech, uh, sermons or newspaper editorials or political speeches. Uh, as you say, it could easily be overdone. People could arrest others they didn't like just because they didn't didn't like them. They were, they were politically offensive. But at some point, uh, uh, the question comes: When does speech become uh, the catalyst to action? Where right. where you do need to do this? Lincoln himself, uh, you know, in the famous open letter, uh, uh, says, you know, must I uh, not must, must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts and not touch a hair of the head of the wily agitator who induces him to desert? Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and thinking of contemporary events, of course, the, the, the tragic shooting in Arizona of, uh, uh, of a, a, a congressional representative, uh, one can argue if this is simply a mentally unbalanced individual, but certainly some people have said the heated rhetoric of the day uh, helps push unbalanced people over the edge. Right. Uh, now, in Missouri, uh, you don't have to be unbalanced. There are people quite balanced but politically passionate who are going over the edge in both directions uh, and killing people. So, so the suppression of, of political speech there 
in light of things we've seen, maybe doesn't seem as maybe it's easier to recognize in light of our own tragedies why that was perceived as necessary at the time. Right, and you have to remember at that time there was not built up a uh, through either our courts or or elsewhere a strong uh, idea about free speech. I mean, it wasn't very long before the war, I believe it was, that uh, John Stuart Mill wrote his uh, book on liberty, which he he uh, of course makes a strong and passionate uh, argument for free speech uh, as the only way to actually arrive at the truth, or at least to have a chance at arriving at the truth, and that's why it's so important to allow everybody to have a say. But when you have a situation in wartime where people can, can, whose passions can be inflamed uh, to act in a particular way, which may result in the death of others, it's a different situation, especially during a civil war. Uh, civil war is a, a very different animal from uh, a foreign war. Uh, and that's, I think, the major reason why I think uh, much of what Woodrow Wilson did in uh, World War One was just uh, absolutely wrong, because there was not the imminent danger to, uh, to society and, and the possibility that... Uh, you, know, you could have uh, our constitutional system destroyed in the way that it was during the Civil War. So it was a whole different situation. It was a very difficult situation, a very dangerous situation. And because we know the outcome of the war, of course, we, we tend to forget that. Uh, so I think that we have to try to put ourselves in the midst of that and think about what was happening and, and the great pressures and the great dangers before we're... Uh, critical. I, I am critical in the book. I do point out that uh, Lincoln, I think, went too far in, on certain occasions. But overall, I would say that he, he gets a strong A, for me anyway, uh, for the way that he handled much of, of what uh, came across his desk. Well, I th that, that uh, brings us to the closing music with a very uh, eloquent conclusion. And, and I think you're Assessment of Lincoln is, is, is accurate. I would agree with it certainly that he he, he uh, responded uh, in, in a, a very balanced way to an extraordinarily difficult situation. So that does unfortunately bring us to the end of our time. Uh, but Dennis, I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you very much. And listeners, you'll want to take a look at Lincoln and Civil Civilian Rights in Civil War Missouri by Dennis K. Bowman. Uh, you'll enjoy the book, and I want to thank you all listeners for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management